This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Margaret Owen, whose newest book, Little Thieves, is out now. Uh, we also get into uh, her Merciful Crow duology. The second book, The Faithless Hawk, came out last year. And we talk about, obviously, her influences, how art influences her writing. Great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. So listen in. So, Margaret, what book hooked you? So, you know, this is always an interesting question because as a consummate book nerd, uh, I was reading before they realized that I needed glasses. Mm. And I just had my books, you know, or like I had my face just shoved into like a Nancy Drew book from age seven on. But um, I think, you know, as a kid, those were always great. Um, but I kind of wanted to touch on what got me back into reading more regularly as an adult, especially, you know, all things considered, um, Terry Pratchett actually was what got me sort of reading in the same kind of veracity that I had as a kid. And, uh, I would point to, I'd say Lords and Ladies, uh, as, the one that really did it for me because I loved Good Omens. I really enjoyed Equal Rights, but Lords and Ladies was one where I saw this sort of this life of, um, you know, being a benevolent but uh, powerful presence within a village, but not necessarily having a biological family of your own. I saw that presented as not a negative thing, but in fact, like this, um, you know, this this kind of thing to be proud of and an achievement unto itself. And, uh, you know, that's, that's with the character of Granny Weatherwax, who was the village witch. And um, the book itself deals with sort of alternate realities where she could have been, you know, the mom, the, the matriarch of a sprawling clan or a powerful sorceress. And it was the first one to say, no, there's actually like, you know, a lot of value in being okay and good at where you're at. Mm-hmm. That's great. And where, like, well, let me, let me back up just a little bit. So <laughs> mm-hmm. this was, you know, Terry Pratchett, Lords and Ladies. This is a book that you said got you back in the reading. So what, mm-hmm. what had you, why had you stopped or why had you not been as much in books <laughs> before this time? I think, you know, that was when I was in college and um, there's definitely, I think, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I had a lot more time, a lot more focus, um, being able to read recreationally was kind of encouraged. And it was sort of this, this approach of, if you're reading, that's good enough. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that was, you know, good enough for grade school, good enough for middle school. And then we get into high school and I, I still read, you know, the, the assigned books, but I think that was where I first started to struggle with some of the assigned reading where I was just like, this doesn't, this doesn't, have this is a book that doesn't have any interest in me if that makes sense (laughs) and um you know the this was also back in you know the the early 2000s so there's been a lot of great work done since to expand the curriculum into you know books that are written for you know for for teens um and to speak to their issues and, and stuff that interests them but it felt like we were kind of being pushed to use our reading time just for curriculum that it it, it was, you know, let's meet, let's meet, you know, John Steinbeck at his level and let's talk about what interests John Steinbeck has. 
And it's like, I'm, I'm a 16 year old girl. I, you know, <laughs> I, some of this stuff is interesting, but also I want to talk about, you know, all kinds of, I, I want to talk about magic, you know? Yeah. What then brought you back to books? Like, was it, mm-hmm. were you handed Lords and ladies? Was I, I'm being redundant <laughs> oh, here. Yeah. So I'm going to have to no, edit no, some totally of this fun. up. So what, what, what then got back? you yeah. back to reading in adult life? Honestly, this this sort of um, really speaks to the power of word of mouth uh, recommendations. Is that um, you know I was in a a art webs a deviant art chat site <laughs> or a chat room, and um, some of the folks I was hanging out with were talking about how much they loved Terry Pratchett's works and where a good place to start would be, and they just directed me towards Equal Rights because um, I'd already read Good Omens at that point. And I was like, this is fantastic and hilarious, but I just didn't really sort of get the the impetus to keep going. Um, and then, you know, they <laughs> I was nudged gently towards equal rights and picked it up, started reading. And I was like, I love this. I love how funny it is. I love how it doesn't take itself too seriously. I don't, you know, I love how it has all these really interesting ideas and philosophies woven through it but it still is going to make a whole lot of kind of you know winking at the camera jokes but not in an obnoxious way um and from there i was like i could read five million books about these characters and then i did (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. and so with getting back into books then um where then did it pick up that you wanted were going beyond just reading books but then this idea of creating your own stories right so uh i actually wanted to be an author since about fourth grade Hmm. and i think you know if you looked at the time when i stopped reading as much for fun and the time when i sort of started letting that idea go uh there you know there's a lot of overlap there Hmm. and a lot of the messages that i got were that being an author and generally any kind of creative endeavor is not a sustainable income. It's not something that serious people do. It's not like, you know, it's, it's fine to do as like a hobby was very much the messages I was getting. And it was also, you know, if you want to be successful, if you want to be financially stable and independent, you like, you know, all the the stories about the starving author types, Uh, that was definitely a big deterrent. And then, um, turns out I actually made more money writing once I actually did start it. But um, I had wanted that, you know, that particular vocation from a very young age, kind of let it go. And then after I ran around and did a whole bunch of different jobs, (laughs) um, I had been in the political circuit for a little bit, just as a field organizer, I hit a kind of a wall where I was like, I don't feel like there's a sustainable way for me to proceed, you know, for me to rise up the ranks any further without, you know, an, another job. And I don't feel like this is something I want to pursue anymore. And I sort of had a heart to heart with myself and said, every time I change jobs or even when I'm doing them, I just keep on coming back to writing. That's what I keep on coming back to just for fun. You know, it's like, it's like with art. Cause I also draw, um, I do art and writing for fun and, when I'm not working and hanging out with friends, that's what I want to do. And I can make money from doing that. So I decided, um, and this was, gosh, oh, this would be 2013-ish. So at that point, I would be about 27. I'm going to date myself here a little bit. (laughs) But I decided that I would um, at least start the process of 
holding down a day job and <laughs> spending all of my social time elsewhere, <laughs> diverting all like the majority of my social lifetime to uh, just drafting manuscripts and seeing, you know, getting, improving my craft and trying to get published. And mm. when I just a little bit like a couple months shy of my 30th birthday, I made it. <laughs> right. I sold my first three books. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and so once you were kind of um, on that path and with this mm-hmm. idea of, of, of pursuing writing first, when you first started out, mm-hmm. where did you see yourself as a writer? What did you imagine yourself when you were, when you pictured your book on a shelf, what section was it going to be in? Who did you want your book to kind of be beside, you know, be mm-hmm. compared to like, what were you kind of striving for initially when you started mm-hmm. out? I think, you know, this has always made marketing for myself a nightmare because <laughs> I um, <laughs> I always, you know, try not to be too precious about it, but I've, I've never looked at someone's career path and said, uh, I want to emulate this exactly. Mm-hmm. Partially because um, I feel like what worked for them is not going to work for me and trying to mimic that just isn't going to do anything but produce like a weaker uh, imitation of that. But, um, you know, I, I had, you can probably see on the bookshelf behind me, you know, I, I'd been picking up some, some young adult books. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, these are fun. These are fast. These are interesting. Uh, they are about teens. And I think that's a really interesting time of life to write around. And I'd read, you know, a couple other adult fantasy books, but a lot of the time they were very sort of either, you know, it was, it was kind of like the the George R. R. Martin thing, where it was just like a, 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 a very interesting doorstop, <laughs> but it was also um, kind of like heavy and and dark. And it was very sort of interested in having fantasy that also told the world the way it, that mm-hmm. it is, which is tends to be a lot about suffering, which I'm, I'm like, well, that's, de- that's depressing and unaspirational. Um, and, you know, I, I thought um, I could write, you know, I could try to do an adult fantasy, but I would rather write about this age of tremendous transformation and like, you know, these ideas of self-discovery, um, which adult fantasy doesn't quite engage with in the same way, which is not a problem like that. You know, that's, that's its own, it's a genre with its own beautiful conventions. And, you know, the way that people have engaged with that is fantastic. But YA fantasy to me seemed like this incredible venue to, to, you know, explore what it looks like to forge your own identity mm-hmm. as a teen in a world where you can do anything. Do you want to be a dragon? You can write a book <laughs> about being a dragon, you know? Do you want to, do you want, with my, with my first duology, it was, do you want to use bones for magic? You can use bones for magic. You can do an even creepier version and use teeth for magic, which isn't technically bones, but I've just sort of swept that one under the rug for a while. So. And you said about like during this time when you were, mm-hmm. you were kind of striving to get published uh, the idea of trying to perfect your craft. What form did that take for you during that time? I am very much a self-reviser. So, or, and I revise while I am drafting, which um, makes for kind of a slow approach because I, I can bang out maybe a thousand words in a day. Um, on, <laughs> although when I, <laughs> when I get really going, then like sometimes we can hit like 7,000 words in a day, but those are very bad days. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, 
as far as improving my my craft goes, uh, you know, some of that did take the form of, you know, handing it out to, um, to critique partners and beta readers to see what their thoughts and impressions were. Um, some of it was just reading other books that were, you know, trying to engage with things or, you know, had similar tones or different, um, you know, different elements and analyzing how they pulled it off. What, what specifically they did, like, you know, what kind of vocabulary they used, what kind of pacing they used, how they set up the scene and like, and the, the narrative camera as it were, and what they were following. So you never lost, lost track of the plot. Like one of my favorite books for that, from a craft perspective is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, because when you look at all the craft decisions that go into it, the fact that it's told from, I think, six different POVs and you never, ever are told which one you're, you're reading and you fi- figure it out within the, like the first paragraph or two, that from a craft perspective is simply astonishing. And the decisions to put these very complicated um, action sequences sometimes in the perspective of a young boy who is just going to narrate it very straightforward and like not embellish anything is brilliant because it basically tells you exactly what's happening. There's no way that you can sort of fudge the details in your head. And so, you know, (laughs) that was a very long tangent, but, you know, looking at other books and how they pulled off things that I was trying to achieve, that was always uh, a way of sort of studying the craft for me too. Mm -hmm. And so, and you brought up your duology, uh, Mm -hmm. the Merciful Crow duology. So that uh, the Merciful Crow came out two (laughs) years ago. That was the first Mm -hmm. book. Um, when, when you first went about writing, uh, the merciful crow, was it always a duology? Was it always two books? Was it maybe going to be a third book and you condense it down? How did it become a duology? So that was a little bit of a complicated situation where, um, we had sold my publisher three books and it was initially pitched or it was pitched to them as a trilogy. They wanted to buy two books and then um, sort of get their offer a little bit more escalated <laughs> over the, the competition. They added a third book onto it. They they weren't sure if that third book would be a standalone or a third book in a trilogy. And unfortunately, realistically, the way that uh, those decisions get made is based on sales numbers. And that becomes a challenge when you have to write the second book before the first one comes out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, ultimately, you know, the thing that I really didn't want to do was uh, have two books of a trilogy and then have my publisher say, look, we really like what you're doing, but it's not, the sales numbers aren't there. So we have to switch gears because then I would just have an unfinished trilogy hanging around my head. And I have plenty of respect for readers. Let me just state this up front. Mm-hmm. But the they most readers aren't going to have the industry knowledge to say, oh, so that wasn't a deliberate choice on the author's part to leave that trilogy hanging. Um, and so instead, I um, ultimately kind of late in, I think it had about the first third of The Faithless Hawk drafted. I was like, I can't continue writing this without the uncertainty. So I'm going to make the decision to have it be a duology um, because we, we just don't have a clear answer at this point. And I am going to condense, <laughs> condense some of the, the plots that I had for, you know, different books uh, or for, you know, the, for the second and third book. And I'm going to condense those and cut out some stuff that are, I liked, but, you know, 
it may it wouldn't it wouldn't fit in in condensing two books down into sure. one um and yeah so it was it was a challenge because i always knew what the ending of the duology would be or of the series would be uh and it it became a question of how do i get to that ending in a way that feels earned and also have or take the book that was supposed to be the second of three acts and make it into the second of two halves and how do mm. i make that you know be in conversation with the first book in a way that i hadn't planned on so going off of your explanation yeah. does does that mean that as a writer you you are very much a plotter when it comes to yes. your story <laughs> I am very much so a plotter. I, um, I mean, and I've gotten a little bit better because I'm going to, I'm going to um, expose myself for even more of a nerd than usual. But um, for my third book, I had been um, running a and d campaign at that point for a couple of years. And that really helped me not outline mm-hmm. as much because when you are running a session, <laughs> you just have to be ready for the players to see exactly what you're trying to do and just sprint in the opposite direction. <laughs> and do the complete opposite of whatever you expected uh, sometimes quite literally and um that you know that helped me sort of be more comfortable with not plotting everything out quite as tightly but yes for merciful crow in particular and you know other manuscripts i've worked on i have a a an outlining process that i try to um or i kind of refer to as an iterative one in that uh i will have a broad list of events that I want to have happen in the book. I will sort them chronologically. I will break them into acts. And then um, I will write, really, as, as I start drafting each act, I will write a one to two sentence summary of each chapter. And as I start each chapter, I'll take that one to two sentence summary, move it into a different doc, <laughs> and then flesh it out into like a, a paragraph or two of outline for that chapter. And um, then that's that's what I draft based off of. And I have in that sort of chapter level outline. I also have notes on like running threads that I need to, to remind people of, or things that I need to need to tackle that weren't tackled in the last chapter, just stuff that, you know, fell off. Um, But what I found with that particular approach is that it gives me the flexibility to say, well, I just killed off a character who was (laughs) supposed to be pivotal in the, you know, in the, in the final battle. So what are we, how are we going to approach that? How are we going to fix that? And I can just sort of, you know, go into the, to the third act and say, all right, well, now there's this character and now I need to lay the, the groundwork for that, but I won't have disrupted too much of the outline. There's not so much detail put into it that it doesn't have a lot of flexibility. Great. <laughs> and that then uh, brings us up to your newest book mm-hmm. uh, called Little Thieves. So we'll start talking about that First, give us the rundown of what this book's about. So there is a Grimm's fairy tale called The Goose Girl. And in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> it's it's a weird one. Uh, it's about a princess in who um, about halfway en route to her fiance's kingdom uh, has her identity stolen by her maid. Uh, and the princess basically becomes the servant who has to work in the palace of the quote unquote princess um, who is 
secretly the maid and who is going to marry her fiance and you know it's all very sad and like a very very <laughs> depressing version of the the prince and the pauper and then eventually the the truth comes out and the maid is punished and um the princess is restored to her rightful place and the thing that sort of makes this an interesting story to me is that in the st- in the fairy tale the first act of villainy by the maid is to quit she it's her saying i don't want to be your servant anymore i quit and um then the the when when she takes the princess's identity the princess then has to wear the terrible dress that the maid was wearing and ride the bad horse that the maid was riding and from a different perspective you kind of have to look at this and say why is it that it was totally okay for the maid to be subjected to all these things that are a punishment for the princess and the maid has put up with them presumably her entire life and so little thieves is kind of it's loosely based on the inversion of that or you know the story of the maid and asking why would she want to quit mid mid trip why would she want why would she feel like taking the princess's identity was a way out or you know or a viable viable um plan to begin with and uh, so that's you know that that sort of forms the 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 spine of the book um no pun intended <laughs> uh but in, in as far as little thieves go and its plot um it's basically the maid has spent the last year uh using the princess's identity as a smokescreen to um infiltrate high society parties and commit a series of jewel heists uh so she can escape the kingdom or she can afford an escape of the kingdom that they are living in and um then she crosses the wrong family winds up cursed by their patron god to turn into jewels herself unless she can return everything that she's stolen before the full moon and (laughs) yeah it's um it's fun and you know there's other complications in the form of an amateur detective who has been well actually no he's quite highly trained but uh he's been brought in to catch the jewel thief that's been plaguing the nobility and the fiance of the princess is uh also on his way back insisting on a very um very short notice wedding and there's all kinds of complications with that too um Hmm. but yeah it's sort of all about this curse to to become less selfish and uh what that what that really means in in terms of power dynamics too Hmm. and so it sounds like the the spark that got you started it was this fairy tale uh the goose girl Mm -hmm. is it something where you were looking for inspiration in fairy tales you just happened upon this fairy tale (laughs) how did that come about right so i found that for me my my biggest story ideas tend to sort of come from a couple different sort of amoeba of stories that just sort of smack together and i'm like oh no all three of these things combined actually make a good story and so in this case um i had this idea you know i had i'd had lurking in the back of my head this idea to do a story about a con artist who is cursed to do good deeds i also had a character background uh, that i really liked which was a, another like an identity thief who you know almost this kind of um Anna Sorokin was um, this hilarious scammer who, you know, pretended to be fabulously wealthy and just coasted on being young, attractive, and confident 
and scammed people out of, I think, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in both goods and actual money. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to do a story about um, or a character who was basically pretending to be a socialite and had stolen the identity of a socialite uh, in order to become a thief and you know do these jewel heists. And so those two combined with the idea of the goose girl um, retelling. Or, you know, I think I was like, I was looking at that. And I was like, you know, that, that, the, the, the scammer who's impersonating someone that could be a good connection to um, the goose girl, but it would actually be the story of the villain. And so all three of those things sort of coalesced into, you have this social, like this person who is impersonating a socialite to, to steal a whole bunch of jewelry. You have uh, her curse to do good deeds and you have this whole complication of the princess whose identity she's stolen coming back and being very unhappy with the circumstances. Mm. And I want to go back. You mentioned how uh, you're an artist. Uh, mm-hmm. You like to draw. Uh, does in the planning of and the developing of your stories, is that something you ever do where you'll like sketch something out? whether it's an outfit or a, a setting or a object to kind of get a better idea and a better understanding of what you need to put in the book? Absolutely. Cause I, I find that when I do brainstorming with sketches, it actually helps engage a whole totally different part of my brain um, and say, Oh no, this would be a cool visual detail to add. This would be a cool sort of nuance. Uh, like the, the fact that the main character almost always wears her hairs and braid or her hair and braids that I don't think was part of it until I started drawing her more and more frequently. And I was like, Oh no, I think I like her having, you know, these, these two braids that almost look like devil horns practically <laughs> just about. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's little things like that. And that it helps me like do doing character sketches, doing um, doing sketches of, of actual scenes in the book. Uh, sometimes I'll actually storyboard out an action sequence to get an idea of who is where, because otherwise that can get a little, little uh, hectic. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely use art uh, to sort of develop the world a lot. So with this book, because it, it sounds, mm-hmm. as you told us before, it was uh, part of the contract. So di- it, did you want this third book to be a standalone? Was that what you were looking for uh, when you started in on this story with that understanding? Yeah. So since it was the third book in the contract, um, one of the things that is complicated about book contracts is sometimes they come with an option clause. And that means that uh, the, your publisher gets the first look and first shot at um, whatever book you're going to write next. And the, um, my third book had that, or my third contract had that option clause. So I knew that, you know, I would have to give some idea to my publisher, something, you know, some proposal on what to work on next. But that said, I always write the, you know, when I'm starting something new, I always write it as if it's a standalone and it's just a habit from, um, from querying days, which is, you know, they always say the, the best, the best approach is instead of propose, pitching a whole series to, to an agent, you want to say the fir- this is the first proposed series, but it functions as a standalone because sometimes you can only sell one. Uh, and so Little Thieves is absolutely written as a standalone. Um, but I will say that when I was, when I was working on the book, I found myself enjoying writing this world and these characters so much that I was just like, I can write a million more of them. 
That's great. So let's wind down. And as we do, I'll ask you a few questions. The first one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? So I've been thinking really hard about this and I have to split it between um, three movies. I'll do this very fast because <laughs> I, I am a huge sucker for the Pride and Prejudice 2005 adaptation. I, you know, that's, that is absolutely a comfort movie, just hands down. Um, I also really enjoy two, <laughs> not one, but two different Miyazaki movies that are actually both adaptations of uh, books. And I think a lot of, you know, the first one that comes to mind is Howl's Moving Castle. Mm-hmm. Everybody enjoys that. <laughs> I, I'm speaking for a lot of folks, but, <laughs> you know, I think that was, that was not only a fun adaptation, but it also was, you know, if you read the book, it's significantly different. And I think the the movie brings its own sort of story and life to to the book or, you know, to the story itself. And I really appreciate that as a sort of, I, you know, a, a good example of how a movie can do something or can totally veer off the rails from the book and still be a really cool adaptation unto itself. But um, I also really appreciate Kiki's Delivery Service, which not a lot of people know is actually based on a book because I think when you view it as a metaphor for the creative process and becoming a professional at something that you love, it's staggering. <laughs> it is, um, it's it's like, oh no, now that she's doing this thing that she's really good at and she enjoys, but she's doing it for money, all of a sudden she loses the ability to do it entirely <laughs> and spends months in a depression. Oh, well, that's gotten a little cut, cutting a little close to the quick there, bud. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, you know, when you view it as a, as that metaphor uh, for the creative process and becoming a professional creative, it is, it, you know, it, it hits different. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. So the next question, is there a book or a series you're willing to admit you've either never read or never finished? Okay, I'm going to expose myself even more as a as a as a nerd. I never read Twilight, and it's be, I think you know the first book came out when I was a senior, like at the end of my senior year in high school, um, and you know just about to head off into college. So I was just shy of the the target demographic, I think, at that point. Um, and the other thing is that I think a lot of the the drama and suspense that came with Twilight. I was already getting from anime. That's that's the nerd part. There are so many like late 90s, early 2000s animes that gave that kind of like, oh, do you want a possessive dude and or several possessive dudes fighting over you? <laughs> anime can deliver in spades. My God. Like, have we have we heard the words Inuyasha? <laughs> there's, you know, so there's you know, there was a lot of stuff where I appreciated the, you know, the kind of drama that Twilight was bringing, but I was like, I've already got my source for that covered. Sure. And then finally, what is the last great book that you've read? Oh man. Um, Oh, the last great one. I should have thought about this one more because I, (laughs) I have, you know, I'm reading just books constantly, but um, the, I think just to bring it really full circle, um, I really enjoyed Gideon the Ninth, and it was because I think it tapped into that kind of same freewheeling humor infused in so much of the book um, that really got me back into reading with Terry Pratchett. Uh, you know, it's the I, I'm always going to have a weak spot for books that are just genuinely, unabashedly, and exceptionally funny, especially when it's a fantasy book. <laughs> Great. 
Well, Margaret, Little Thieves is your newest book. Congratulations and can't wait to see what else you might have for us. Thank you so much. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of another episode. I want to thank Margaret for joining me again. Her newest book, Little Thieves, is out now. So check that out. Also check out her Merciful Crow duology. And of course, as always, check out some of the other great episodes we have with some authors, if you haven't already. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading.